Anyway, I've I've got to I've got to hang up and get off. So. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, you got what you need out of us. I see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. At so. least at least he kissed us after we got. That's okay. That has it's got me. to be the soundbite. <laughs> <laughs> Freelancer Show. On today's panel, we have Eric Davis. Hello. We also have Evan Light. Hi. And we also have Jeff Schoolcraft. What's up? Now, uh, we've kind of been a quiet bunch this morning, so we'll have to see how the show goes. Um, so we were discussing what we wanted to talk about, and uh, one of the things that uh, that somebody brought up, and I've been asked a few times, is uh, whether or not to take fixed bids. And uh, I'm pretty sure I know what you guys are going to say. So uh, uh, if anyone wants to chime in and share their opinion on whether fixed bids are hourly or either one or both are okay, then uh, go ahead. Well, why don't we start with actually defining what fixed bid is? Because I see people say, don't do fixed bids, but they actually don't mean the same thing as someone else. Okay. So when I say fixed bid, what do you think? Um, For me, it's basically a set cost. Um typically a set of features and then they'll typically be like a set deadline which goes whooshing by usually but right and then you know the other end of the spectrum is every hour i work you pay me x amount of money right yeah and that's some people consider that hourly uh what else would you consider hourly when the government space um we would call it fixed bid firm fixed price and that's all the expenses, everything you're doing for whatever scope the project is, rolls up into some big number. The other, the other way to bill is time and materials. So, you charge for every minute you work on the project and every pencil you buy or whatever you have to do to to clear it up. But that's the other, I don't know, vernacular terms I've heard for those two billing concepts. Right. I, I want to see you code with a pencil. That would be, that would be fun. Sometimes it'd be faster. <laughs> <laughs> it's easier I, to debug. You just turn it over and use the eraser, right? <laughs> yeah, I actually do it a lot on index cards. You know, when I'm modeling or whatever, just kind of write stuff on index card. If it's not going to look like it's going to relate, just throw the index card away. It's a lot faster than removing code. That, that's true. Yeah, that's kind of an interesting uh, planning phase or, you know, I guess modeling phase and and I you know you can do it agile so that you're consistently updating your model as you code so uh one other one other method or means of billing that I've I've heard of is where they do kind of a fixed bid per feature and so if the client adds more features then they'll be estimated to a cost and then um, once you agree on the cost for that feature then then it goes on the pipeline and so, yeah I, I only recently read about people doing that and personally that would scare the hell out of me uh, because then now you're on the hook for a whole bunch of mini estimates granted I suppose perhaps um, variance on a per feature basis on estimates on a per feature basis might not be perceived that badly by a client because the dollar amount involved is smaller but still just the having to do all those individual estimates, and uh, I don't know. I, I sort of, I, I say that at the same time, let me back up. The way I tend to do project estimation, so I guess this topic goes off into the weeds a little, is is that I try to get something resembling a spec from the customer, and if I don't get it, then I pull teeth until I have something like it. And then I go through and then I assign point values. I would use the Fibonacci system, and I have some rough idea of when I assign points, roughly how many hours I tend to require per point. And so that tells me that if I were, as I charge an hourly rate, um, because I don't feel comfortable charging fixed bids, so getting back to the point, then that tells me approximately how much it'll cost. 
and usually I'm pretty good within, I don't know what the margin of error is, but maybe plus or minus 20%. Mm-hmm. But see, I mean, overall, like I do quote agile stuff, but this is something that I, I get a good snicker out whenever I hear people talk about it on a consulting. They're always saying, you know, I allocate this as points and then I make the points into hours. Well, correct agile you're not supposed to do that points are not supposed to be time-based yeah but it's every every consultant i ever know does that and it's it's just a funny little point there well i think most, everybody most of us don't do quote agile most of us do you know what we, or i guess most of us do what we call agile and everyone does it a little differently and and of course it's only the people who are scrum masters who have it right and yeah that was well, supposed to be sarcastic yeah <laughs> Well, one thing, one thing with that that I've noticed is that a lot of times you have some kind of stakeholder or you know somebody that really actually, um, they, they want a number that they can do something with, and points is not something that they can uh, keep track of. It's not, right. you, you know, so to them it doesn't mean anything because it's not how long it's going to take and it's not how much it's going to cost and it's not um, how many resources it's going to use up. It's... It's just a number. And so, you know, sometimes you're kind of forced into that. Um, and, and in a lot of cases, you know, your client wants some kind of time or budget estimate. And so I, I found that the points and then a rough conversion is a really good way of getting there because I do basically the same thing if they want to know how long it's going to take um, and, and therefore what the budget's going to be because I do bill hourly. Um that's what I do is I, I use uh, points. Now, I, I use an exponential scale instead of a Fibonacci scale, but it's the same general principle. And, uh, yeah, so then I just go in and I say, well, three points is roughly one day's worth of work. And, uh, you know, so you, it should take about this long and, and, and blah, blah, blah. Now, in some cases, I found that the points actually do slide one way or the other. So, um, technically, if I'm working a 20-hour week, you know, that should be about, what, uh, eight points or something on my scale. Um, but anyway, uh, one thing that I've seen is that, you know, sometimes I'll get six points in a week working a 20-hour week. And, and on other projects, I'll get 10 points in a week. And so as far as uh, sprints and estimations and stuff like that go, you know, it does get more accurate as I go. And uh, generally, it's a gut feel. But yeah, you know, if I have to translate it, I'll translate it. And, you know, two points is half a day, four points is one day, eight points is, you know, two full days of work. And yeah, we're saying the same thing. So, But, I mean, I guess my thing is, is like, why do you do that translation? Why do you say two points is four hours? Why don't you just say four hours? You know, and you have a little bit of flexibility. And stuff's going to be high, stuff's going to be low. I mean, that's estimating. Yeah. But, like, why do you have that middle layer in there? It, just, it doesn't, doesn't make sense. Because I need to pick an arbitrary number, and picking an arbitrary number is easier when I have a smaller set of values to choose from than when I have the infinite range of floating point values or the infinite range of integer value hours. Yeah, and I also want to point out that the only the only time I ever do that conversion at all is when I'm when the client is saying how long they want to know time and money. Exactly, and yeah. that's exactly why I do it too, is so that way I can give them. A rough dollar amount so I can give them a non-binding estimate. Yeah, and, and that's exactly it. It's like, look, you know, um, these points really are, you know, for my method of keeping track of how how efficient I am and, you know, um, you know, to help me kind of track my, my coding and, and help me get better. But, uh, you know, this is the best estimate I have on hand, and so this is the best estimate I can give you is by roughly translating this, so... Um, yeah, so that's, that's pretty much that. Hmm. So yeah, back I, mean, to the, so I still we, don't get it, but we can <laughs> move on. Pop, do we want to pop the stack back to fix bid or hourly? Right. So the one fellow that I was talking to yesterday, um, I, I, he, he was talking like one of those people that is toying with the idea of going freelance, but one of those people that you never think will actually do it. Um, right. and, uh, he listens to this show, so I'll probably get an email from him. But anyway, um, so, yeah, he was talking to another guy, and this guy's a Flash game developer, and that guy was saying, look, you got to do fixed bids on everything because it's the only way that you make good money. And then he came and talked to me, and I said, don't ever do a fixed bid. Don't do it. Don't do it. And so uh, me and the guy who recommended fixed bids got into a little bit of a discussion, and uh, basically in his arena, 
um, you have these these uh, boutique shops that you know pretty much everybody goes to to get their flash games built, and those boutique shops he can actually go in and um, undercut them with a fixed bid that still gets him like two or three times the rate that he would get if he billed hourly. So you know in in those circumstances it makes sense. Now in well, sure. in, our, in our field you know I I just don't know. It seems like there are quite a few. Uh, Ruby or Rails developers out there that charge about what we charge, and there are some people out there that just don't get it that charge way less. And so, um, you know, in, in our situation, yeah, I, I just I don't see the upside of of taking the risk on it because you're probably going to bid too low if you're going to get the bid. So another freelancer out there who at least uh, three out of maybe four of us know, uh, Mike Underway, uh, he says roughly what I tend to think too about fixed bid. And that said, if someone's going to ask me for a fixed bid, I'm going to take my hourly rate and then I'm going to do an estimate based on my hourly rate in the fashion that, that you and I described, Chuck. And then I'd take that number and I'd multiply it by a factor of about three or four. Yep. And that is, that's how I – because to me, the problem with fixed bid is it's all about risk management. If If I have to give a fixed bid, there's no way in hell I'm going to take my – hourly rate estimate and just say, here's my fixed bid, because I know that there's going to be some margin of error, maybe plus or minus 20 or something like that. And then I also know that customers sometimes do feature creep. So are you going to take feature, the, if we're going to take you know feature creep in new account, um, or are you just going to tell the customer, no, we have to renegotiate the contract every time you want to change anything, um, which by the way, that's more like the government model, right, Jeff? That was a lot of fun back then. Um, you know, every time you want to change the contract, well, here, let's. Every time you want to change the the uh, product, here, let's go to renegotiate the statement of work, and no, that, that's not so much fun. So you want to take all that stuff into account, so that way your your ass is covered. Ooh, hopefully that wasn't too bad a word. <laughs> so uh, it seems like Eric has an opinion. Oh, I got plenty of them, but um, trying to think of time. So when I first started, I. I did hourly and fixed, and then I was like, oh, fixed is a great thing, and then I went to fixed is a bad thing, and then I went back to fixed is a good thing, and I'm actually coming back now around to, like, fixed can be a good thing, and it's just, like, kind of what you're saying, Evan, like, it's a risk thing. You well, know, to so me, almost everything about, you know, uh, being a contractor is, to me, some form of risk management. Right. Well, my, my thinking and, and the way that I manage uh, fixed bids, because I have bid a couple of projects fixed and I didn't get them because I was way too high. Um, but basically, yeah, what I do is I, I give them a here's here's the best case. So if everything goes, um, if everything goes exactly to plan and there are no unforeseen things at all whatsoever, then here's my best case estimate. And then I go and here's my worst case estimate. And uh the worst case estimate is usually at least double, at least double the the best case estimate. Um, just because it's like, look, if if everything I can think of goes wrong on this, then this is what it's going to take. And you know, in some cases, the the unknowns make the risk unbounded, but you can't you can't right. put that on there. So what you do is you just say, okay, well, you know, um, this is about as bad as I can see this feature going. And so then what you do is you is I, I get that it's at least double and then usually I pad that by about a hundred percent. So that gets me right around that three to four uh, times yeah. that, that Mike was talking about. And uh, you know, the Evan said Mike uh, recommends. And you know, um, when I do that, usually they come back and they go, Holy cow, that's really high. And so then what I <laughs> let's do it hourly. <laughs> yeah, well that's, that's that that's exactly what I do is then I send them, okay, well here's the best case and here's my worst case. Um, so if we go hourly, you know, we're probably going to fall somewhere right in the middle of this. And, um, you know, if you're comfortable with that, then we can do that. We can put an upper limit on the, uh, on the cost so that, you know, when we get to, you know, six grand or eight grand or 10 grand or whatever, you know, wherever your number is, then I just stop working. And then we, we can reevaluate and say, okay, you know, these couple of features absolutely have to go in and the rest of the stuff we're going to throw out. And, uh, you know, and I, I also tell them ruthlessly, ruthlessly cut out anything you don't need. And that way we can control costs because usually they're worried about budget at that point. So, um, but once I send them that, then they're usually looking at it and going, okay, well, if you think that you're going to fall within that range and, uh, you know, then, then we can go with it. And usually I'm, I'm much closer to the lower bid than the higher bid 
you know, the best case than the worst case. Because things right. usually don't go that wrong all the time. Well, and that that's kind of something I've seen a lot. A lot of people do the time and materials or hourly rate, but they still give a budget to the client. So the, you know, we'll just use round numbers here. So we'll say $100 an hour and it says, yeah, we'll give you a 40-hour budget. We don't know what we're going to get done. We're going to try to get these things done. And I've talked to a lot of clients and whenever they hear that, they immediately translate that into a $4,000 fixed bid. Now, they know there might be stuff that's out of scope. They know my, stuff might come in scope, this and that. But to the client's eyes, a lot of the hourly rates, especially if there's a, a budget of hours, it looks like a fixed bid. Like they have this time period, this amount of money they're paying, and they're going to get these features plus or minus on all of those. So, I mean, that's why I keep coming back to fixed bid, you know, in my own stuff. It's like, wouldn't it just be easier to just have, here's what's going to happen. The client doesn't have to worry about nitpicking on hours. Like you charged me five minutes for that phone call. Why do you charge me for that? And just kind of let them worry about, you know, their deadline, their cost, and actually being a participant in the project. So, I mean, it's, it's really murky with all of this, but it's just, I don't know. I'm actually leaning more towards doing less hourly and more fixed bid. And one thing actually I started doing is when I do fixed bid, I try to make them really short. So like a one or two week um, cycle per bid. And that way there's less risk. There's less chance of, you know, everything going wrong. And it's also easier for the client to stomach because they might, you know, get a week here and then maybe next month get a week, another week, and then maybe two weeks after that. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the thing the thing that we're really talking about here is risk and, you know, both you and Evan have brought it up is is risk. And so um yeah, I mean, if you can keep your risk to a couple of weeks, that makes a lot of sense. But there is always that off chance that you're going to wind up instead spending 3 or 4 weeks on what you bid those 2 weeks to get done. Or there's the off chance the client's going to drag you into meetings on a nonstop basis and then you'll be on the phone the whole time and you won't get much of your work done, but you have to get the work done. So then you'll be working really, really late and then you'll have spent all of your time working on this project and you won't have gotten the value out of the project that you were hoping to get. Right. I think some of that is customer management. or, But I mean, there's a fairly polarizing topic, I think. I mean, there are the folks that say that if you don't charge hourly, then you're basically out to screw your clients. And if, on the other side, if you don't charge per project, and then even further by value, then you're screwing yourself or uh, you're more concerned with uh, your prerogative is not to be as fast as possible. Because you're not going to be able to charge as many hours. Right. And my response is, is really not that polar. I lean toward hourly, but my response would still be it depends. It's just that when I say it depends, most of the projects that I've approached, hourly is usually assumed going in by the client. Um, if I was working with a different market, like I think – Eric, probably, maybe you, Jeff, touch more markets than, than I do um, because I, I tend to end up working with startups an awful, awful lot. Um, but if you're touching a market where a lot of the providers are charging some kind of fixed bid and you have some idea what, what they might charge, then if you offered a smaller dollar amount and got the job done in the same time and just as well or better, you gave them more value and you might still make a lot more money than if you came in hourly. And in such a situation, I would be okay with that. I just don't find myself in that situation. Right. So the upside of fixed bids is that you could wind up making much more per hour than... And your customer could still come out ahead too. Right. Because it cost them less and got done faster. Right. Yeah. And so that's, I guess that's kind of a distinction. Um, one of my clients, I don't remember all of the rules they had, but they had rules on how they bid. But the one that keeps my mind is if... The project is about something that is vague and going to change, so like the stereotypical startup type idea. It has to be hourly because there's no way for you to fix all that up front. If it's kind of a a stable, like, you know, this has been spec'd out, we know how it's going to work, then that's where a fixed bid actually works better. Um, And actually, that works in my case. Most of the work I do is not cookie cutter, but it's pretty much the same thing. Like, all my work is in Redmine or Chili Project. And so I know where all the bugs are. I know all the stuff in it. And there's certain like patterns that I come across every time. And so it's easier to do fixed in that case than it is in hourly. 
All right. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. You know, you you know, and see, that's the other thing with uh, I think with fixed bids and with scope in general, is that uh, if you know the problem domain and you know it really well, then it's much much easier to give an accurate fixed bid. Right. The the risk is reduced because you understand the domain that much better. The the problem with being a developer in general is that we're routinely asked to solve problems we haven't solved before. And therefore, or at least by degrees, we haven't solved before. And therefore, there's always going to be degrees of risk associated, and usually fairly large degrees of risk associated, because we're trying to estimate around things we don't necessarily know that well. Right. Yeah, and, and that entails a certain amount of risk, because you you know, yeah. You just I mean, building know. the umpteenth millionth uh, Facebook-like app, you know, that, that's one thing. But if, if they want to have some kind of unique feature like, Recently, I had to write a recommendation engine. Well, I'd never done that before. So that's another case of, well, I took it, broke it down into a bunch of pieces and uh, and estimated it and, and it was pretty accurate, but there was more risk there as far as I was concerned, for example. Yep, absolutely. So, yeah, so uh, <clears throat> are there any circumstances under which you would take a fixed bid, Evan? I, I think you, you, you nailed one of them. If I really knew the problem domain that well, and if I knew, I guess it also, it, it comes, right, it always comes down to risk management. If I knew what the customer's budget was in advance, if I knew the problem domain really well, if I knew, um, if I had some idea of what competitors were bidding at, and if I saw an opportunity to bid lower and everyone wins and I, and I actually have less risk going fixed bid than hourly, then sure. But to me, um, most of the time, I'm probably going to find, I tend to find less risk in bidding hourly and telling the customer that there'll be some degree of variance and giving them some estimation of what I believe that variance to be. Right. So, you know, it depends, but I lean toward hourly, as I said earlier. All right. So the flip side of this, I guess, from the customer standpoint is uh, it's the other polarizing reaction. I mean, uh, you have fixed bid so I can allocate a budget and this one of my clients this is the one that I'm gonna fire but they're the client that they work for basically they wanted an estimate for all the junk that they could possibly think of putting into the system we work on so they could come up with an annual budget for their IT and this is multi multi million dollar big pharma drug companies so I mean they have but they need to budget they need a line item that says it's gonna be 500 million 500k or whatever for IT costs for this thing or 100k for this or whatever so on one hand they want to know what it is so they can budget for on an annual basis or on some regular basis and the flip side of that argument is if we go hourly then you fall into the situation this never gets done you're always at the 80% we're almost done, and if I keep throwing money at whoever, then eventually I'll get it solved. But this is the other side of the argument. But Yeah. Yeah, I found that there are – I've in the past, I've dealt with some customers who've been burned by other contractors, and, and that causes them to want to go fixed bid when they talk. Um, when I say burned, it's a situation that you described, Jeff, where something is almost done that's almost done forever, and you know, nothing ever ships. Um and what I usually tell customers there is, you know, let's have some kind of project management tool. Usually I'm using Pivotal Tracker, although one client that was using, oh my goodness, Redmine, um, saying I'm no! something. <laughs> Good for them. And, and that's going to be the, 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 the uh, that'll be the episode lead in right there. <laughs> the no. Um, any, <laughs> but, um, but I digress. So what I tell them is, here, let, let's take uh, one iteration. Let's you know, usually a couple weeks. Let's take a couple weeks. We'll throw some, we'll throw tasks in there, and we'll see how well I get them done. You know, if if I'm way off base, the, and you don't feel comfortable with it, fire me. If I'm if you're feeling comfortable with what I'm doing, keep me around, and let's do that on a regular basis. That's what I tell all, all the people who are gun shy. I'm perfectly fine with that because I absolutely do not want to take advantage of my customers because I have a personal issue with how the government worked and it's one of the reasons I escaped because I couldn't stand seeing taxpayer money pissed away. Yeah, now they just piss it away on somebody else. Now they just piss it away on somebody else. 
Yep. <laughs> but at least I can look at myself in the mirror every morning. Those people, I guess they can too, but they have lower standards. What can I say? <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to insult all government contractors right there. Boom. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So one, one other question I have then is let's say you were going to put together a fixed bid. Um, Evan, you mentioned your, you talked about how you would estimate that, but, uh, I don't think we heard from Eric. Eric, how do you estimate stuff like that? Um, so I think we talked before, um, I basically go back and forth with him, try to get a list of all the features, all the, you know, build a kind of rough spec that people are doing. Um, and then I just kind of go from there and start going off my past history, like how, how long stuff would take or this or that. And then, Whenever you do fixed bids, you have to pad it a little bit. Um, there's project management, there's unknowns. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's going to come up. Um, most of the stuff I estimate, I don't know what it would be called. I've, I've stolen it from someone, but it's basically each each big bug or each feature is either one hour, two hours, four hours, six hours, eight hours. And then it's like 16, 32, 64, you know, like extremely high numbers. Right. Um, and so I basically do all that for myself and then kind of err on the side of like stuff's going wrong, you know, stuff's going to hit the fan and just break randomly, get all that. And then this is something I learned, um, I think Alan Weiss or whatever was one I heard it from, but so I'll say, let's say I come up with a bid of $2,000 for features ABC. Well, what I'll do is I'll prepare a proposal, say, okay, it's $2,000 for A, B, and C. Or if you want A, B, C, and D, it's $3,000. Or if you want A, B, C, D, and E, it's $4,000. Uh-huh. Um, the whole point of that is you're giving them a fixed bid, but you're not just giving them one thing that they have to say yes or no on, but you're giving them options. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes a client will say, well, we're on a tight budget. We're going to pick the low end one now. Maybe we can do this stuff later. If the client just wants the stuff and wants it to work, they might be, wow, I didn't consider E at all. E's going to be amazing. So they'll they'll take the higher bid, and then it actually translates into more work for you, like more, like billable work or whatever. Right. Um, and then I mean, basically from that, then you just work it, and I keep track of all my time. So even though I bid it as a fix, I consider it an hourly, and I try to you know work as fast as I can to get a good quality product out the door. And then at the end of it, I'll come back and do a retrospective and see actually where I was with my bidding, if I was high, low, or if there's certain areas I messed up and factor that back into the next bid. You know, so say, say some integration with Twitter, it happened a lot faster this time than I know next time I, I can integrate with Twitter a lot easier than I normally think. Right. So, um, so it sounds like you're figuring out more or less, you estimate how many hours it's going to take and then you uh do you just multiply by your hourly rate or you know with a buffer obviously but yeah i'm trying to remember the last one i did i think it was i did added like another 50 percent to account for like project management and then scripts and then i times that by my hourly rate and you know say it's like 3875 or whatever i'll round it up to 4000 just to make it easier to talk about right Right. so jeff um we've kind of heard how we all estimate do you kind of do the same thing or? Yeah, about the same thing. I mean, uh, and I chuckle with all the the fudge factor stuff. I mean, I was sitting at, God, I don't know how many years ago, been my software engineering course in college, uh, like end of my junior year, beginning of senior year, somewhere around then. And they were talking about software estimation. This was a guy that did, my professor did some work with uh, naval research labs and so, and he would always be the same way. And then so you do all this stuff and you come up with the estimate and then you multiply by four and then you're still going to be wrong. And that's, <laughs> so, and I've seen a bunch of that. I mean, I basically, I, I try to come up with as close an, an estimate as I can to individual items. I have uh, multipliers for stuff when I don't know. New technology makes it more expensive. If I've never done something then that makes it more expensive. And then I guess past relationships with a client or how I think the client's going to, how they're going to be on a day-to-day basis also gets factored into some multiple. And that that's a lot of the numbers. It is. I was trying to, I was trying to dig up. I think it was in a Reddit discussion. I was trying to dig up, but there was a similar, a similar question, like how do you quote a project? And they were talking about, 
I mean, they have multipliers for everything, and I've never gone that crazy. But I mean, uh, it's and you can go back to risk. But I mean, if if it's a new technology, the more new technology you try to use in a single project, the more risk, sure. Right. Well, the bigger, the higher likelihood that you're screwed. Yep. Same thing. So, like the next project is going to be Redis and whatever and whatever and whatever, and you've only done Active Record with Postgres or something, you're screwed. So that's one. And then if you spend all your time doing social networking for your next Facebook app and somebody asked you to build some huge data classifier, then, I mean, that, sure, it sounds like it should be fairly simple or straightforward or whatever you think it is. But if you've never done it, you have no idea. So you have no history. And that's yet another risk. But who knows? And the other thing we haven't talked about, or maybe we did, and I was searching for that question, but sort of a hybrid approach. And there are two versions, but before I get to that, it, it was Alan Weiss that talked about Eric's how to present the offer. Uh, it's some catchy title, like how to how to guarantee your bid will always be accepted or whatever. But, but uh, so that you always offer like the low rate. You wouldn't do this if you respected yourself. The client wouldn't do that if they respected themselves and their product. So it's just the bare minimum cut rate features. Then the middle is your estimate that you actually want to get uh, accepted. And then you offer some over the top extreme, like if they just have some huge bank of money and they want to throw it at you, then they'll pick that one. But that was Alan Weiss. But the hybrid is sort of a, and I guess Evan talked about it a little bit in his hire me for a week or two at a time and We'll review it later. You see a lot of people that are trying to do fixed bid weekly, or not. You buy me at a, buy me at a day or a week, but instead of paying hourly, you pay for some chunk of time. So you either get me for a day or you get me for a week, and it's going to be close to whatever six hours or close to thirty hours for the week, and we'll see what I get done. But you buy chunks of time or sprints worth of time, and do some work towards the end and then do a review at the end. But Right. And that's a lot like how I've done it in the past and where I kind of, instead of, you know, a fixed bid for a six month project, it's more of like a fixed bid for like two weeks, which is like, you know, version one or version beta or whatever. And then iterate on that. So you have these like feedback posts you can come back to and say, okay, well, we went, you know, me as a business internally went really, really over on the estimate or whatever, so I can adjust for the next one. And over time, it kind of pads itself out and figures it out and kind of gets pretty close to it would be if it was just a straight hourly without a lot of the headaches. I mean, when you, when you get right down to it, for me, it's, it, and I guess I keep coming back to risk, it, it's trying to size up what a client's uh, tolerance for risk is versus my tolerance for risk and trying to find the common ground. If there is common ground, if there isn't, then the then negotiations fail. If if there is, then we, well, we often have a contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean that's that's business in general and business transactions. That's risk management. Sure. I mean, there's yeah. risk of it taking too long. There's risk of budget stuff. Either you know over budget for the client, which is actually good for you or bad for them. I mean, it's uh, if you look at almost anything in business. You could see risk behind the scenes on things, or yeah. just you know ignorance, stupidity, arrogance. But th- those are the fun ones to play with. Yeah, ignorance. <laughs> well, yeah, ignorance is is the fun one because when you were mentioning that, sometimes I run into the problems where the client doesn't. They might know their budget, but they really don't understand their timeline, or there's some constraint that they have that they're just not all that conscientious of, and that causes problems later. Right. Yeah, and and that's always interesting to try and draw those out. So you know, figure out where their budget is. Because a lot of times if you're negotiating the contract, you know, they don't want to tell you what they're willing to pay. Um, you know, they, they want to see if they can get the best deal possible. And so, you know, you're kind of doing that's this. That's okay. Yeah, but you're doing this little dance to try and tease this out, where in a lot of cases it would be a whole lot easier, you know, if you knew what they were willing to pay so you could tell them how much work you could get done for that amount. I don't often really try to tease it out as such. I usually just tell them here's what my estimate is in terms of times, here's my hourly rate, and if they're okay with it, or if they have, if they're okay with it, they're okay with it. If they take gross issue with it, well, we don't really have much more to discuss, 
and if they want to discuss, if they want to negotiate a little, that you know usually means they're somewhere in the ballpark. Then, then we talk. I just I like to keep it simple. I just don't like to play a lot of games, at least as I see it. Well, I'm not saying you. I'm not saying you guys do. I'm just right. I'm just talking about how I see it. Yeah. Well, and your approach is pretty much what I do too. It's just you know sometimes I felt well if they would just tell me. Right. You know, how and much? So I just and so I literally just ask them. Do you know what your budget is, and are you willing to share it? Yeah. And and sometimes they just do, and that makes things easier. And then sometimes they tell me, and then they find out later. Oh wait, our budget isn't what we thought it was, and then things get more complicated. <laughs> yep. But yeah. So anyway, um, and the other thing to go back to Alan Weiss again, and like value based pricing, which is different than fixed bid pricing. So it's not so much you pr- you do price to cover the cost of the project, but you're pricing based on how much value you're actually bringing. So if you're some code monkey that's just adding another Facebook sign-in to their website or whatever, then I don't know how much value you're bringing. And he's Alan Weiss is more like traditional consulting. Like if I if I don't know if you're some giant conglomerate and I can make you. 25% more efficient doing X and that saves you or that allows you to make $600 million more a year or $600 million more over the next 10 years, then you shouldn't whine about paying me $600,000 for this, whatever, four weeks worth of work because my value far out, outweighs the cost that, for you to actually give that. And then he always talks about asking for budget, which is interesting just to see uh, budget's interesting in the beginning just so if they're asking you for the next Facebook on Craigslist and their budget is $200, then, I mean, beyond getting another Facebook on Craigslist ad, $200, you're not going to do anything for $200. And for even $10,000, you're not going to get a ton done. And depending on where their budget is and what they're asking for, you can not even bother to estimate and not waste your time trying to chase a lead that doesn't have a realistic budget. But the flip side is he always talks about trying to find value. And he spends, and I don't know how to how to do it in the software space. I think you have to know the the problem domain a little more when you're, and for a lot of the stuff I'm doing is not, I don't know, maybe in the startup space you can actually, you're helping somebody build a product that will make them money. I A lot of the times I'm supporting products that allow businesses to just run their business and it's uh, I don't know but it, so there's a value question how much so how much money do you have for this pro- project and how much is it going to be worth to you when it's done right or what is it going to be worth to you when it's done yeah so real quick um I don't think I've ever heard of Alan Weiss uh can somebody give like a 30 second explanation of who he is and why we should uh, read his books or whatever he's some He's some PhD. Uh, he wrote value-based pricing, the millionaires consulting toolkit, and his tweets. I forget what his Twitter is. Some Bentley and uh, his dog. He's really fond of his dog. But he talks about. <laughs> it's the only thing I remember about his Twitter. His white dog. <laughs> but um. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> He wrote okay. value-based pricing, and um, among others, he's got a two-day a two-day consultant workshop. He talks about how to bid, how to bid projects, how to charge by value. So, that, I mean, I guess his claim to fame was he was one of the first or few like million-dollar consultants or something. Hmm. All right, cool. And I'm I have a funny feeling we're going to get some picks related to him anyway. Um, but all right, so uh, we, we've talked quite a bit about the fixed bids and about uh, you know some of the negotiation and things that we, we do to get these uh, bids out there. Um, do you guys ever, um, I mean, how, how far do you negotiate on these bids? So let's say you give a fixed bid and they basically tell you you're too high. Do you try and come down at all or do you let them know that you might be willing to negotiate or do you just tell them, well, that's what it's going to cost and, you know, deal with it? Well, this kind of comes from the Alan Weiss because I've read a, probably about half a dozen of his books, and there, there's one. It's cost like forty bucks on Amazon for the Kindle, and it's worth it. But one thing he says is, so if you fix bid at 
a value and the client says like it needs to be cheaper than that his recommendation is to you can lower your price but by lowering your price you need to remove value from the client so if the client says i need you to cut this in half then you should cut the features in half so the product's only worth half as much otherwise you're reducing your own value right yes for no arbitrary reason other than they asked you mm-hmm. yep and i mean to be honest i've had a couple clients and leads who would ask me to lower my price. They didn't. They would pay the full price, but they were asking just to see what kind of deal they would. Like it's you know, if they had a coupon, they would use a coupon type stuff. Right. So you know, if you start cutting features, say like, well, I can cut out half the stuff. They might say, wait, wait, no, we need that. We're going to pay the full price. So we're sorry. Now we're just yeah. talking fixed bid here, though, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but either way, I mean, um, I, I've seen the same thing with my hourly estimates, where they're like. Holy cow! That uh, worst case, because I'll, I'll give them a best and worst case, and I just tell them, look, you know, we're probably not even going to come close to the worst case, but sometimes the worst case number kind of scares them, and uh, so they're like, well, you know, maybe maybe we can uh, figure something else out, and then yeah, I'll scope the work down, and I'll be like, well, you know, if we cut this stuff out, then it'll, you know, it'll cost less, and in a lot of cases, what they'll do is they'll actually go to their feature list and start axing stuff, and going. Right. Oh crap! That. Yeah, but I, I I tend to caveat those estimates when I give it to them. But I, and I think that's what you said earlier too. That when I give them a best and, and worst case, I I tend to tell them, I think we're going to be within some margin, probably of, of that best case, and the worst case is really kind of out there. But you felt obligated, or I felt obligated to give it to them. Right. Um, what I was going to mention in terms of hourly is what. And in consideration, one that as a contractor, uh, the consistency of the work that we get, you know, how long, or I guess I should say, how long a piece of work sustains us, or how much money we make over a period of time on a piece of work, um, varies. So if I have a client who's willing to take me for a a decent chunk of hours on an ongoing basis, uh, the longer that ongoing basis, to some degree, the more I'm willing to reduce my my hourly rate because I get to have consistent work for a longer period of time. Yes. Yeah, that that's definitely true too, and and I've actually had people try and negotiate that way too, and just say, well, you know, if if we're going to give you six months of work versus two months of work, then do we get a little bit better rate? And sometimes I'm willing to do that, and sometimes if I don't know a whole lot about the client and I'm just not sure if you're going to be there six months, right? Exactly. Then, yeah. Then in a lot of cases, I, I'll just say no, I I don't negotiate on rate. Um, Let me suggest a middle ground um, mm-hmm. because this is what I was doing with a with one client. And that's that we sort of had a courting period uh, with a, a first contract where this first term would be at a particular rate, and then we would re- then we decided we would try to reapproach it after that first contract and mm. see how we felt about each other. So that way, you're given some assurance that you'll at least have X amount of work at Y rate, um, and that they're not just trying to buy you um, for a lower rate for a sh- for that same period of time. I like that. I mean, there's another way because I've had that and that's kind of backfired a little bit. But I mean, make your project shorter. I mean, whether it's hourly or fixed, like if you're trying to bid on a one month project, make it a one week. I mean, you could figure out how like the courting with someone in a week, like it's not a lot of work and, you know, they don't have to put out a lot of cash. And for worst case for them, they lose a week's worth of uh, funding for the project. But you know, bid it as that and then make it open-ended on your contract where they could renew it or, um, you know, that you could do another fixed bid right afterwards. I don't know. You see, I, I would hesitate on that if only because it's very rare that I have a good sense of a client in the project within the first week. I mean, I, I have some, but there's I've only had one client where within a couple weeks I had I had a very firm opinion and that was that. And that was a client that I fired. Hmm. Maybe maybe I got luckier. Maybe I do more of the pre-courting, you know, going back and forth in email for that then. Yeah. Possibly, yeah. All right. Well, we're about to the point where we need to do the picks. So um, unless there are any uh, final things you guys want to add, we'll go ahead and do that. Yeah, there's one final thing. Whether you do fixed or hourly or anything else, charge more. That's it. Yeah. Yep. I, I'll say I agree with that because Eric ate me on about charging more and he was right. Yeah, and uh, I had – it was funny when I first went freelance. Uh, I egged you on about charging more. Yes, you did. 
after Eric ate me on about charging more. Yeah, it was actually kind of funny because uh, when I was first thinking about going freelance, I think I was thinking about charging like 65 an hour or something. And uh, yeah, you guys were all like, no, you're way, 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 way too low. And I was like, who's going to pay me more than that to do this work? And uh, so I raised my rates a little just to see. And I think I went to 80. And yeah, it, it was no problem finding work. And you guys were still egging me on. So uh, now I'm significantly uh, higher than that. And, uh, you know, people are still finding the work. And the the thing is, is it's just, you know, you, you have to recognize that there's a lot of value to what you have to offer. And uh, probably more than you think. So um, my, my thing with most people now is I'm like, well, what are you thinking about charging? And in most cases, I look at them and tell them to at least double it. So... You know, and, and a lot of that came out of what you guys told me um, with a lot of this. And, and it's really been helpful, too, to kind of fall in with a group of freelancers pretty early in my freelancing career and to get a lot of great advice from guys like you. So um, that, that's another recommendation that I would make. In fact, I'm going to make that a pick. So let's get into the picks. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> my uh, picks. <laughs> Yeah, I'll, I'll go first. And uh, yeah, the first one is, is seriously, find some kind of mastermind or, um, you know, group that you can talk things over with. And even if even if they're not freelancers like you are, I mean, you can find other service providers or people in your area or you can get online and see if you can find a group of, of people doing something similar to what you do, you know, some service-based business. And just, you know, just have a mind share because in a lot of cases, they'll have encountered stuff and they can save you a ton of trouble and time doing things that you really shouldn't worry about. And, and by the way, it, it, it's worth interrupting just to mention, that's where this whole podcast came from because the four of us already basically did that or do yeah. that as a group. Yep. But, you know, it, it's made a huge difference for me and my business. And honestly, I probably wouldn't have been able to start up um, some of the podcasts that I have and things if I didn't have the freedom that's offered by freelancing. And I don't know if I would have lasted if I if I hadn't talked to you guys and, and gotten some of the advice that I did. So, you know, it really, really makes a huge difference. And you can send uh, bonuses to all of us. And here, let's give you addresses for that. Yeah, I should send you guys something really, really nice. <laughs> no, I mean, in all honesty, though, like what you what you're doing now is how you're helping the next set of people who are freelancing. Right. And I mean, yeah. when I got started, there was a group of freelancers that helped me. I helped some other people, some in our group, and then they go out and help other people. I mean, it's it's more of a community paying it forward type thing, and that's yeah. that's really what makes it good. Yeah, I, I'm not into paying anything forward, so, you know. <laughs> Is there something in your... <laughs> anyway, um, so that's one pick. Um, one other thing that I want to go into really quickly is uh, I have a lot of people ask me about what I use for my podcasting, you know, what equipment I have and stuff. And so I'm going to pick about five things um, that I use in Better my podcasting. And I will link them up. So the first one um, is my microphone, and it's a Heil PR40 uh, microphone. Um, it's regularly a $400 microphone. I've seen it on Amazon for about two eighty. Um, if you want something a little bit cheaper, uh, there are some out there and, uh, I'll, I'll link it up. Uh, I don't remember what it is, um, right at the moment, but there's another microphone out there that, uh, that I, I highly recommend if you're not going to spring on that. And it's about a hundred dollar microphone. Um, if you just want something to plug into your computer, I've heard a lot of good things about the blue, Blue Snowball or Blue Yeti microphone. So uh, um, anyway, so I'm using the PR40 microphone. Um, you really want to get a dynamic microphone if you can help it. And I'm not going to go into what that means. Um, but anyway, that's kind of what you want. And then um, I have a mixer. It's a Behringer uh, Zenix 802 uh, mixer. Um, Behringer makes some awesome stuff. So if you if you want to go check their stuff out, um, it's... It's just a, a great uh, little mixer. It's an eight-port or eight-channel mixer. Works terrific, um, and that's what I'm pushing all of my stuff through. Um, and then it's going into an Ederol um, R-09HR R um, uh, digital audio recorder, and they don't make the R-09 anymore. It's now the Roland R-05, um, but, but it's a terrific little... Um, thing so uh that's an ederol it's it, you don't need to remember ederol anymore roland bought them out so it's a roland r-05 
Um, and I'm putting it in the show notes as we speak so uh, I can remember that I recommended it. Um, one other thing that I've used uh, on my um, iPad uh, when I was I- inserting the audio um, myself is, let me find it here, it, it's called Resounder, and it's a little soundboard for your, um, I, it, it works on the iPod and the iPad, or on your iPhone, so that's a great way to go if you uh, want some kind of little uh, sound effects mixing board, and finally, the last thing that uh, I'll recommend to you is uh, Adobe Audition, and uh, Adobe Audition is, um, it's a little, uh, well, it's not a little, it's a pretty big application that, uh, you can use to edit your uh, podcasts. If you don't want a spring, I think it's 100 or $200 for it. I actually got a deal on it because I bought the Adobe Master Collection, and, and so it is rather expensive. If you're not going to go that way and you have a Mac, then uh, GarageBand works pretty well. But there are some other ones out there that I've heard recommended, and uh, you know, as long as it does the job, then that's what you want to do. But you want something that will at least do uh, basic compression, you know, multi-band compression, uh, which makes your voice sound really good because it dampens some frequencies and raises others. But, uh, you know, just some great stuff there. So uh, Adobe Audition is what I use, and it seems to work really well. Of course, most of this is done by my VA anymore, so I only use it rarely when when he's not around. So anyway, those are my picks. And uh, Audition is only recently available on Mac, right? It used to be Windows only. Yes, yes, it used to be Windows only. And I actually have I have a license for Windows and for Mac because that way if if I get a new VA then I can just say install you know download the trial and then use my license key and and it works pretty well so anyway um, Eric what are your picks um, okay so I have two the first one we were talking about Alan Weiss he has um, a book it's called Million Dollar Consulting but recently I think last year he did a rehash or a redo redo of it called the consulting bible um i'm not going to get into too much but i was reading on my kindle and i think i got to like chapter two before my kindle told me that you can't take any more notes and highlight anything else in this book (laughs) there's that much in there that even i mean i came into a couple years experience and it's like there's new stuff it's like oh my god i have to try everything in this so it's a good introduction to his the methodology and the way he thinks. Um, it's on the Kindle. It's also, I guess, paperback. And it's called The Consulting Bible. Where you can have unlimited note-taking in your paperback. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and then the second recommendation, um, so I freelance and I'm pretty much solo all the time. I barely do any pair programming. Um, most of my social interactions through email and all that stuff. So. I, I have to learn on my own, but one thing that I've kind of learned a lot from is actually watching other developers code or solve problems. And for that, um, Peep Code has a couple screencasts called the Play-by-Play series. I've watched two or three of them, and once again, took like gobs and notes of stuff to try. And I mean, I'm a diehard Emacs user, and I was watching a guy using Vim, and I was still picking up a lot of ideas that I can incorporate into my workflow. Was that Gary Bernhardt? So, yeah, yeah. I can't pronounce the name, so I just skipped over the name. <laughs> but yeah, so the peep code play-by-play, um, just it's great no matter what level of developer you are because you can see the thought process someone goes through, and you can also see what tools and stuff they use. So, And it's it's interesting to watch, and they're relatively cheap. So Yeah, if you want to get more of Gary Bernhardt, I just want to throw this out there, you can find his stuff at destroyallsoftware.com. It is a membership site. I think it costs 9 bucks a month. But yeah, uh, mind-blowing stuff. Yeah, yeah, I have Destroy All Software also. It's well worth the money. It's, I think, a weekly uh, screencast, 10 to 20 minutes each week. And it's like beginner to advanced stuff covers just a wide gamut of tech topics. So it's it's definitely worth it, too. That's a minor pick for me, I guess. Okay. Uh, Evan, what are your picks? Well, I guess I have two anti-picks. Um, one of them is sort of serious. The other one is sort of humorous. <laughs> first anti-pick is the iMac microphone, because that's how I'm talking to you now. I'm really not hidden in a hidden underground bunker. I am sitting in my office talking to my screen, sitting about one and a half feet away from it. Um, but I have heard a, a couple of recordings of me on this podcast, and I sound like I'm coming at you from an underground bunker. 
Um, so anti-pick, do not use an iMac for recording podcasts, or at least the iMac mic. I still have to buy a good mic. That, that's so I'm glad that Chuck listed all of his hardware. The uh, other anti-pick would be Eric Davis's internet connection this week. And that's just the, the garble Eric sound uh, that we've been hearing during the podcast. Yeah, I don't know. I have five. <laughs> yeah, well, sometimes it's 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 just a funky thing on the web. Um, I know I know that Skype uses some peer to peer technology and stuff. So it's it's not always your internet connection. Sometimes there's some other funky crap going on with their the way they run their stuff. So it could be right. Skype. I blame the butterfly storm and revolt in Africa. That was also perfectly timed. <laughs> Finally, someone laughed. That's all I was looking for. All right, Jeff, what are your picks? <clears throat> all right, so um, I guess the first one, I shouldn't be able to not end the podcast without saying that my app got approved for sale in the App Store. So if you have – it's a Math Minute Editions – it's a 60-second simple arithmetic app targeted for small kids, like five to seven year old in that range. So go check it out. Buy it. I'm not shameful, shamed, whatever. I have no shame. It took forever to get that out. So that's pick one. Pick two, Steel RubyConf. Steel City RubyConf. I just saw this in... Peter, Cooper, Peter Cooper's um, Ruby Weekly. It's a Pittsburgh conference, which is cool for me. It's uh, definitely closer than Boston or anything else from the D.C. area. But it's uh, first ideal first Ruby conference. So if you haven't been to a conference and you're thinking about freelancing, uh, this might be a place to go. Low stress, lower key than... Maybe RailsConf or one of the crazier ones. And then the other one, if you don't want to do any billable work, Mass Effect 3 is coming out <laughs> in March. I still haven't played Skyrim yet just because I know I need to go on like a six-week vacation to play Skyrim. <laughs> but Mass Effect is on my list too, and that'll be another several-week vacation. I love the Mass Effect series, but... Ooh, 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 come back to me then, because uh, I've, I've been holding <laughs> <laughs> Evan, what's your pick? Star Wars The Old Republic, damn it. <laughs> That's been my time sink for ever since December, um, since I got over my Skyrim addiction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid of that one. I used to be on uh, Star Wars Galaxies. and Yeah, it, it's even more, well, yeah, it's more addictive than Star Wars Galaxies. Yeah. If, if you're if you're a diehard Star Wars fan, you absolutely have to play it. And I'm a programmer because of George Lucas and Gene Roddenberry, so mandatory. Yeah, like I said, I'm staying away from that for right now. But anyway, so I think that's everything. There are a couple of things I want to point out. The first thing is is that uh, we should have the pick a topic link on Ruby Freelancers today. Um, I thought I had put that in there, but I guess I hadn't. I'm a slacker. Um, I did move the forum over to a paid account on user voice, um, which means that if you voted for any of the topics, all of your votes are back um, because it, it re-entered them all as me. So that's the other thing is I didn't suggest all those topics on there, but uh, you know, so uh, don't give me credit for the good ones. Don't give me credit for the bad ones either. Um, and, uh, anyway, you should just be aware that, uh, yeah, you can go in and vote the ones up that you want. Um, you can also <laughs> click on that and it should bring up a little dialogue where you can give us more ideas of what you want us to talk about. So, uh, anyway, that'll get you, uh, that'll get, get us some feedback so that we know what you want to hear about. And, uh, anyway, we're also in iTunes, so go in there, leave us a review, um, and things like that. Um, my other podcast, JavaScript Jabber, was actually on New and Noteworthy in iTunes. And the way that that works is um, from new subscriptions and from um, from people listening and giving us ratings. So if you can give us ratings, uh, it will move us up on the technology section of New and Noteworthy and, and help us out there. Um, finally, if you want to hire any of us, we should have our links in the show notes um, to our companies and... Uh, and you can go and you can contact any of us that way. 
And you better give us suggestions for show topics, or we're just going to have an episode about reviewing video games we play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the time sink episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, with that, we'll uh, we'll wrap this up, and we'll catch you next week.